It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the What Culture Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Tilford, joined by Josh Brown. Hello, Scott Tilford. Hello, the other Last of Us watcher in the office right now. We grabbed each other and we ran in here together to talk about The Last of Us Season 1. Uh, we're going to do a bit of a Part 1, Part 2 uh, style podcast for this because there's a lot to talk about with The Last of Us HBO Season 1 and there's even more to talk about, potentially, with The Last of Us uh, Season 2. So um, I was going to see where this conversation takes us. Uh, where are you sitting? Other than apart from me in this room, for <laughs> Last of Us Season 1, what did you think as the credits rolled on the whole season? Scott Tilford, I thought I actually enjoyed the show more once I stopped reviewing it, by the mm. way. And, and I don't know why that happened. Maybe I wasn't thinking about it's it analytical. as analytically yeah. as I was when I was doing ups and downs. But those final two episodes in particular, I was they were the, they were the episodes I was the most worried about, mm-hmm. and they were the episodes that most proved me wrong. Right. So ultimately, I came away from the entire show really, really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. We're going to jump into some issues today. We're going to jump into some positives, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> but overall, I think it's an incredible adaptation that isn't perfect, mm-hmm. but is... For me, the new benchmark for live action adaptations. I want to ask a very open ended question because I think it will get some lols. Is uh, do you think it's overrated at all? Do you think it's because ad- it was it is very much held up as that benchmark? It is very much held up as oh my god, it's never been done. And I'm just like, have you seen Castlevania? Have you seen Arcane? Have you seen all these? Have you seen Mortal Kombat back at 25 years ago? You, have you seen all these adaptations that we've already had? I think it's way better than it any is. other live action thing we have had. And I'm you'll notice I'm using the term live action. Because <laughs> when you mention Castlevania yes. and other shows there in the animated realm, I think they've been doing great work for years. Stuff mm-hmm. that you know honors the source material while doing something new, pleasing the fans, just doing excellent adaptations. Mm-hmm. But in my opinion, we ain't seen that in the live action space. So, no. And because of that, I don't think it's overrated. I think if you have played the games and you love the games, I can totally see why you might say the show is overrated because, in my opinion, the game. I don't necessarily, not me necessarily. I just, yeah. I was quite surprised by the relentless, oh my God, it's never been done. And right. I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Kinda. But, but has it been done? And I mean, and I mean purely in a live action space, has it been done before? 
It depends what comparison we're making because, yeah. like, no, we've not had something that uh, has been adapted from a video game that had this much sort of pathos and weight to it and had um, such a depiction of, I guess, just life on screen. So there's a definitely a commendable quality to that. I know that that's what some people don't like about the Last of Us game. Um, that was we just shot a whole chatty face about like spiciest takes and size was the. Um, she was like, I get it, it's a weighty thing, but we've had weighty game stories before. Um, so maybe I'm just feeling a little bit of that in terms of because for me, if we're talking about the quality of an adaptation, then it's like, have we had a good adaptation? that matches the soul or the uh, creative intent of the story, whatever, potential of the original. So then I would point to things like the Castlevanias, the Arcanes, the um, Mortal, the original Mortal Kombat movie. Like, yeah, it's cheesy, but it, Mortal Kombat's a cheesy B-movie. Like, it, yeah. that's just what it is. So, like, to me, it was always, like, it just felt like people ignoring what had been going before. Um, but you're right. There's something with this much weight or whatever had never been done. Honestly, man, I think even the good live-action stuff like Mortal Kombat, like the first Resident Evil movie, I, I would say they're overrated, in right, my opinion. Right. Like, the original Mortal Kombat, I, I love to bits for its cheesiness, <laughs> for its B-movie quality, but I don't think it's a good movie, if no. that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's a cool adaptation. I love that it exists. But if we're talking, like, in terms of pure quality. This is the most well-made one of them. Like, yeah. it's actually, like, it's genuinely technically proficient. It's very well acted. It's beautifully shot. Like, those are things we've never had before. That's what I mean. Like, if, it, if, it, if it's a case of can you offer this to anyone and will they love it? Mm. I wouldn't offer Mortal Kombat to anyone. <laughs> I wouldn't offer it to my dad and my mum in the same way that I would Give offer Give them a little it. bit of Castlevania. <laughs> yeah, in the same way that I would offer up The Last of Us and say, you know what, I think you'll really enjoy this. Yeah, this yeah. is accessible. I think the quality is there. I think you'll have a good time. I just don't think, again, in, in live action, mm. we've we've had that before. We've had good adaptations, but not necessarily great ones. And that's why no. I would say, for me, it's, it doesn't have that element of overratedness to it. If someone maybe called it the best TV show of all time, I might say, yeah, so that's, that's, I'm sure that's some overrating <laughs> it a little bit. But I think, yeah, like I said, in terms of just raw kind of quality and uh, proper execution, mm -hmm. it's head and shoulders above a, a Mortal Kombat or a Resident Evil for no, me, I think even though I love those. It definitely is in certain directions. I only mentioned that because I was just thinking of wider talking points around the show after it finished and it's sort of the, the general sort of post-season uh, post conversations that were happening. I think overall, I'd, looking back holistically, um, I did enjoy my, I didn't necessarily enjoy my consistent time with it, but the highs were so high. Um, the Bill and Frank episode, I loved the Ellie and uh, Riley flashback episode, even though that directly mirrored the cutscenes in the game. I still thought they did it really well just through sheer acting. Bella Ramsey was incredible, etc. Um, I love Ashley Johnson's little bit that you see as Anna, um, just as Ellie's mum. And so um, I guess we should say spoilers, but I think everyone assumes that anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't necessarily want the overall conversation to be the, is it overrated? Oh my God, it's not that good. Um, it was just a, a general talking point. I think overall it's lived up to the hype. The vast general accepted thing is that they nailed it. I think it's a worthy talking point though, especially mm. like I said, as fans of the games, like I don't think the show is anywhere near as good as game one or game two in terms of its story I and presentation. Also say the same thing. But that doesn't mean in my head that it's also not a great TV show. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's the, the two very different things, or at least I felt that way by the end. And they, they both have strengths and weaknesses that sometimes are kind of mutually exclusive and the depictions of the characters in particular, I mm. think, are very different, but good in different ways, or at least I thought by the end of it. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a case of, I think, I prefer the games. I, I still think the games are the peak version of this story, mm. but that's not to say that this isn't a great adaptation. It's kind of like, you know, I I'll always go back to like The Walking Dead or something, you know, where they're just kind of slightly different mm -hmm. in the two versions of the same thing that are good in their own ways. I think what's what's interesting in that regard as well, before we, we'll get to like specific uh, overall subject matters and stuff, like uh, topics in the show, there's a thing about that idea of like, 
because obviously the game, it's like 20 hours long, maybe 25 hours long if you really take your time or something. So you spend a lot of time with Joel and Ellie and you really feel when certain things happen, you really get to feel like you know them. And that idea of, you know, I think a lot of the, oh my God, it's overrated, oh my God, it's not as good as the game, etc., gets hung up in the fact that you just cannot fundamentally translate that time over unless yeah. you did do the first game as a couple of seasons and maybe when they get to Jackson as the end of the first season or something um, and then you do a whole build up to them going to the Fireflies or whatever um, I think it's there's a weird thing there where I feel like it's almost like you I don't know there's almost like this assumption that it needs to be truncated and it needs to be dumbed down and it needs to be made for a mass audience because it's on TV and it's a wider medium and I think that's to me that's a bit of a shame I would rather they did force the time to do it as good as well as the to, uh, as the game because like it does end up where like the games are just drastically better because they have the time to let those characters react with each other more yeah um, and the bits and pieces that get truncated like even in the finale it's like now we're doing the draft scene and then we're gonna go the fireflies and now here's the massacre and then we get there and like because you're aware of the pacing that's being it's being compared to it feels truncated it feels a bit forced and Definitely. i did have even my parents say it felt a bit rushed and um, but my mum loves the giraffe and so <laughs> little things like that where i'm like okay the average TV viewer is still realizing this is a bit rushed. Um, and then we are sort of like doubly so because we have the comparison. But there's a weird underlying thing of you need to dumb it down for TV. You need to crunch it a little bit in for TV. And I feel like HBO are usually the people who hold up the, the torch for saying, no, you don't. We'll, we'll do a few, we'll do eight seasons for Game of Thrones. Yeah. And we'll, we'll make, we'll do, you know, we'll have episodes about co- that are just conversations. And I think that HBO were on such a stride with that that I was quite surprised they truncated so much of this. It's it's interesting, right? Because mm. I don't think uh, when you look at other HBO shows, yeah, they are similarly, you know, kind of like weighty and they take mm. their time and they allow the characters to breathe. But they're still built around water cooler moments, for lack of a better term. They're still built around those big things mm. that happen, whether it's Game of Thrones, whether it was all the way back in the Sopranos days. The Sopranos is an interesting case, I think, and I'm, I'm so pleased I found a way to crowbar it into this podcast yet again. <laughs> you mentioned it on the UBP, Road to Redemption. I did yeah. as well. This is your well. Road to Redemption. But that show, when I, was, when I was re-watching it, I was surprised at how well it worked as episodic TV because, yeah, it takes its time with the characters. It has all of these conversations and it's very nuanced. Mm. But it makes sure that every hour you get leaves you wanting more. Mm. It has one big moment in it or whatever to stop it feeling like quote-unquote filler. Right. And I think that even with The Last of Us now, when you look at the response online, if you go on the subreddit or whatever, you have people calling the Bill and Frank episode filler. You have people yeah. calling the Ellie flashback filler. And I think maybe for a TV audience, they've I don't know, maybe it's just the era we're in, but anything that isn't plot-driven mm. sometimes gets, you know... You slagged off as being filler when it's when it's not really because like character development is the most important part of the Last of Us story in my opinion. Like yeah. the Ellie's backstory is just as much, if not more important, than Joel's uh, backstory that we get in Episode One. Why mm. can you have one without the other? I don't think that's I think possible. A lot of that came from uh, marketing and expectation and the assumption that this was a zombie show because that you saw that play out week to week, uh, mm. back and forth between even the creators and stuff, and, and a lot of the most staunchest defenders of the show saying like, "Hey, if you thought Last of Us was a, a zombie IP, you've not been paying attention." And that, that general sort, and I, I don't really agree with that. I think that if they had nailed the infected side of it more in the show, then it, it would, it would pair off against the depictions of life in the show a little bit more. Whereas I think that because they start out with quite a, a strong foot with the infected, you get a clicker in like the second episode. 
Um, maybe, yeah, in the second episode. Um, because they do all that stuff in the first episode is the outbreak. Because you lead with that and you say, hey guys, it's a zombie show. Here are the zombies. Here is, here is the threat. If you stand in the wrong place, you'll activate the tendrils and they'll all come running for you. Yeah. And then you just abandon that for like, largely abandon that for the next, well, the rest of the show for the most part. Um, I do think it's it's valid for, especially a new viewer, to just say, well, is there a threat here? Where is the infected? What's happening with this? What am I watching? Whereas, like, I think if the first episode, I would love if the first episode was the Bill and Frank episode. I think it would have it would have set the tone completely differently. Yeah. And you would have focused so much more on interpersonal relationships and genuine relationships. And then you bring in the infected and they've kind of got past that and this is what we're focusing on and whatever. I just think the pacing of the show is a bit weird in that regard. I do agree. I do agree that the pacing is definitely, like, a little bit off. Like mm. I said, some bits are definitely... Uh, too rushed. I'd love to spend more time with um, Ellie and Joel and mm. a lot of the other side characters, you know, Henry and Sam, Kathleen. I mm. would love it if they had more expanded roles. It's the only time I've ever wanted a season to be longer. Yes. And normally I love shorter seasons, 10 episodes, 13 episodes. But this was a case where you had so much story there to tell and mm. the relationships between the characters happen off screen in some cases, which again, that happens in the game, but because you spend more time with them, it feels a little bit more natural. Mm. And I think they could have expanded it out a little bit more. But let's go back to the infected thing, because yeah. that's really interesting. Because I, I do agree in a way that I didn't necessarily like. Uh, I liked a lot of what Craig Mason said about the show and the game. Mm. But one thing I kind of thought that he might have got wrong was that he kind of was really eager and in, in really like kind of doubling down on the idea that a lot of the gameplay in The Last of Us's game was just superfluous and didn't add much to the I actual the, yeah. uh, impact of the story. Mm -hmm. And while I think he's absolutely right that, you know, some stuff definitely wouldn't have translated, and I'm glad they cut it from the um, show, including Joel falling on the rebar, mm -hmm. or even, like, the, the water... Um, near flooding at the end of the game or the the tank chases around the, uh, um, where's that, Pittsburgh? Yep. Like that wouldn't have really translated to a show, but to get rid of all of that stuff wholesale, I think one misses a fundamental part of the appeal of The Last of Us, and that's that action set pieces are part of its identity because yep. a story is still being told there. Mm -hmm. And two, that a lot of story can be told in those action sequences. Like I didn't want loads more action, mm. But I think the David episode, for instance, would have benefited if you did even just get a couple of minute sequence yep. with Ellie and David defending themselves against the infected because that works in the game, not just because it's cool to play, but because it shows you Ellie trusting David through gameplay. And surviving by herself using Joel's skills. And surviving by herself. Well, uh, surviving by herself, but also not surviving by herself because she does no. have David that help, but definitely helping I mean, and like, learning. Yeah, slightly uh, before that, like being able to put the bow and arrow shot and like sort of like yes. you know, knowing that she needs to do something because her guardian is passing away. Totally. And in that scene, you also get the moment where, you know, David reveals he has a second gun, which as Ellie and as the viewer makes you trust him more because you think, well, if he had the gun the whole time, he could have just turned it on Ellie when mm. she had a gun against him. Like, and I think by re removing that action scene in particular, you then remove part of the story. And that was a kind of source of contention for me that I wasn't one of those demanding more action in every episode because mm. I do think there's a lot of threats still the infected, but at the same time, I didn't like how Craig Mason just kind of viewed 
a lot of the action as superfluous. I, I never got past, on a completely personal level, I never got past the way he described video games going into this, where he was, I don't have the exact quote, but it was a general conversation around enemies in video games and how stories have changed over the years and the idea of, you know, we've um, we've moved on from pixels kind of thing and we need to be able to tell these more mature stories. And I was like, how, what was the last game you played? Like, was it Pac-Man? Like, what the hell are we talking about? I just didn't, I, his general tone, uh, them going back like months, it was just that little clip that got separated out. And obviously it was blown way out of proportion. I know he was making a wider conversation about the medium itself, but I think that there was a, a little vestige of that was that idea of, well, enemies are cannon fodder and we need to get away from that. We need to focus more on the characters and make it more like a like a lifetime drama, which is fine enough. That's exactly what I loved about the Bill and Frank episode. Um, like a beautiful gay couple in an apocalypse. That's Tell me that story. That's great. Um, I want way more of that. But, like, yeah, I, it, it almost needs that underpinning of threat for everything else to work. And so, like, for me, there was just a big big issue with the infected as a presence that I thought they dropped the ball on, um, especially when you've changed them enough to have that idea of stepping in the wrong place, activating them. I think that's a cool wrinkle to what we already had. Yeah. Um, and then just wasting stuff, in my opinion, wasting stuff like um, Kathleen or uh, or even David, like, or even that whole bit where, um, is it Jonathan Pierce or Jeffrey Pierce who plays Tommy in the game? Um, oh yeah, I'm not. Who's uh, sure. Kathleen's right hand man? Yeah. And he uh, goes through a door, and you see the the ground move. Um, and it's and they sort of, they both know about it, but the whole platoon doesn't. And I was like, if you if that was Game of Thrones, you would have stretched that out for three or four episodes, where it's like whatever that is, you'd have fan theories. What's that thing going to be? And you finally reveal it to the bloater, and then you have to deal with that. And you've had three or four episodes of building up that whole group of people, and it all culminates in them all bursting out the ground, and, and who's going to make it out and whatever. And I don't need the show to be Game of Thrones, but in terms of pacing, that would have been so much more, we would have been so much more invested in all that stuff with the Doctor being killed and Kathleen and Henry and Sam and all that kind of stuff. And I, they rushed through it and it became a bit like Villain of the Week to me, where it was like every yeah. week it was introduce someone, finish them off, introduce someone else. Like there was no permanence to it. I'm so pleased we, mm. I'm so pleased we didn't have three or four episodes of that because right. for me, as a, as, a, as a viewer or a fan of the source material, like, yeah, it would be cool to set up the, the little rumble in the floor a little bit more, but <laughs> is that important to the story we're trying to tell? Well, not, not that entirely. I just mean, like, flesh out Kathleen stuff. It was yeah. just that you could have had that as a little thing in the background Absolutely. to remind people of the threat. I agree. I would have liked a bit more with those characters, but when you're talking about a scale of three or four episodes for each of these things, Ish. I do worry that it would dilute the entire point. And I think mm -hmm. the point is, you know, Ellie and Jill, their progression, how do these characters impact them? It's nice to see the wider world, but when do we get kind of like bogged down in that? Mm -hmm. When do we lose the, uh, the the core thread, which is uh, in this case for this season, it's the idea that like love can corrupt, like like this idea that you will do anything for love, to quote me, love. Um, <laughs> and that might not always be a good thing, you know? Yes. To me, if you kind of like then dwell on some plot points for a little bit too long, you might dilute that kind of through line. And that's the only kind of way I disagree, because I do agree with you in theory that mm. I, I think things should have been allowed to breathe a little bit more, but not breathe for that long. Still no, keep it like is, 12 or 13 episodes mm. rather than expand it much longer. No, I think as well, when I like when I said, when we first started saying about like, once I hit credits, thinking about it holistically, thinking about if you watch all those episodes in a row, thinking about the journey that you literally see them go on in a row, if you watch them uh, more close together, almost if you binge watch it or something, um, it is way more high octane overall, and there is way more of a threat overall because the threat then comes from the human interactions, and the, it doesn't have to just be the infected. It was just watching it week to week where it just, and it, obviously it was a big old conversation online of just being like, where where are the infected? Is there that much of a threat to? Is there actually that much to cure right now? It's such a hard question because I think the pacing makes it feel like the threat isn't there. But mm. when I looked back on it, 
And I thought, why would these people, you know, want to cure the infected? What threat does the infected pose? Mm. I kind of ran through and I thought, oh, the infected have killed almost every named character we've seen. <laughs> they, you know, were responsible for Ellie's entire predicament, killing Riley. You know, they were responsible for killing Henry and Sam. They were responsible for killing Tess. They were responsible for killing Ellie's mother. Mm. They were responsible for killing so many characters, Kathleen, Perry, all of those people. And to me, I, I kind of thought after that, what more could they have necessarily done to sell that threat when you have used the infected to kill off all of these people, all of these core characters mm. and establish most of these central cast's motivations around people they've lost from the infected threat? Like, yeah. how? Like, what more do you need? What At what point does it become a little bit redundant? True, I think for me it would have just, it, I don't know, I mean, at some point I could sit down and sketch out what I would have loved to do and it would be things like um, having the, the recurring bump in the ground thing around Kathleen's people or it would be having some other thing where you don't even, you're not even aware of the whole tendril thing until some two characters are fighting. Maybe Joel and Ellie are fighting over something um, and you could have that whole scene in the cabin where Ellie pushes Joel and says, you know, you, um, everyone's left me except you and maybe he falls back onto a tendril, I don't know, and it activates something. I don't know, you just, some way of, uh, of reminding the viewer that even though you're having your personal human drama it is <clears throat> uh, around you know this whole zombie apocalypse thing um, just I mean I think the fact that it was this whole conversation about the infected barely being present yeah. like it, it didn't seem to land with as many people as it needed to be it's not like we played through the game and went like oh they were barely there totally they were there all the time oh and I know it's definitely trying to I think they've even admitted uh, Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann that they were trying to tell the leanest version of this story possible mm. what it few did feel elements lean, yeah. yeah do we need to actually sell the themes and it's funny that you mentioned there a thing that I think they conveyed really well, surprisingly. <laughs> when you were talking about someone having their character drama and then suddenly an infected like pops up and it ruins their lives. To me, they established that brilliantly mm. in the Ellie and Riley I knew you were se- that sequence. One. And I'm like, <laughs> again, it comes back to kind of like redundancy in storytelling. You have that moment, you have that established. Mm. You could completely um, double down on that and show that happening multiple times. But at what again, when you've got nine episodes, at what point... Does that become redundant? At what point have you already established that threat? Like, do you yeah. need a little bit more? To me, it was enough, but obviously to some people, it wasn't, and that's totally fair as well. Yeah, we should switch into positive stuff because I definitely didn't want to be Mr. Aggie Complainy Man, but I just I can't hide the fact that some stuff finishing the season that it just, if I'm going to represent the side of the conversation that was bits and pieces didn't land, um, let's talk about the stuff that absolutely did land. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Before we go any further, I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, Masterclass. With the amount of time we spend discussing and analyzing video games on this channel, it's always good to understand exactly how these experiences are put together. And fortunately for me, I can do just that with Masterclass. With Masterclass's streaming service, you can learn from the best to become your best, studying and growing with over 200 plus of the world's leading instructors. For me, I've been having a blast using a class on video game design by The Sims creator Will Wright to find out exactly how game mechanics are designed around player psychology as well as learning how important playtesting is to shipping the titles that you and I both love. But it hasn't stopped there, as I've also been brushing up on my practical filmmaking skills directly from my favourite movie director Martin Scorsese, as well as trying to get back in the cooking game with Roy Choi's amazing course on intuitive cooking. Seriously, my kitchen is a mess, but my belly has never been more grateful. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to courses on your phone, computer, smart TV, or even via audio-only modes. Even better, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and 88% of members feel that the service has made a positive impact on their lives. And to put the cherry on top of that cake, right now, What Culture Gaming listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com forward slash gaming. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash gaming. What's that? You want it one more time? Well, that's the URL masterclass.com forward slash gaming. Right, now I'm going to watch Tony Hawk try to teach me how to ollie properly. I'll see you all soon. Obviously, the casting's phenomenal. Pedro yeah. Pascal and Bella Ramsey have become, like, national global treasures over the course of this show rolling out. Can we talk about them right now? Because yeah. Pedro Pascal's Joel, I abs- I mean, I love Bella Ramsey's Ellie, but Bella- I think Joel is great because mm-hmm. he's so different from the game version of mm-hmm. Joel. Like, this Joel is not... He's not softer, but we see him in more vulnerable states. Yeah. And even though that's different from the game, I love that. I think... He- one of my favorite scenes from the show is when he's talking to Tommy and he finally has someone that he can kind of confide in mm. and he kind of goes on that big emotional speech about his dreams and you can see him breaking down. And we've never seen Game Joel break down in that way apart from when he loses Sarah and then later on in The Last of Us Part Two, Like, you don't see him break down in that way in the first mm. game. And I thought that was like a lovely added wrinkle that Pedro Pascal brought to that character and the writers, of course. Yeah. And just shaded that character in a different way. One that I probably wouldn't have wanted if you asked me before the show started, but one I appreciated so mm. much in 
the moment. One thing I, I really like that they do is an overall, this is something you could do for a lot of different adaptations, and it's something that games themselves have done with uh, Nathan Drake and Uncharted 4 and Kratos and the new God of Wars, is take a quote-unquote video game character, someone who is largely invulnerable or who can deal with killing 50 or 100 people or 1,000 people or whatever it is, um, and, and try and, not necessarily, well, it's kind of grounding them, but like humanizing them to some degree. Like in Uncharted 4, Drake's, all of his uh, adventuring treasures are all up in his attic. He sort of buried them a little bit. He's settling down. He's trying to get a mortgage. He's trying to move on. He's trying to like have this whole home life and how much he yearns to be a video game character again. And you get to go on that whole adventure. And Kratos having his um, like anger problems represented as a rage meter. And how does that guy become a dad? And it's like, they're, they're great ways of taking established tropes and fleshing them out. And I love that whole idea. And I think it was Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann um, who said they want to take Joel and be like, what would an actual person, how would they react to going through this? Um, where obviously Joel beats that guy to death right near the beginning, and he like you see him heal over the course of like three episodes, but he's having panic attacks, he's worrying, he's shaking, um, you know, he's trying to take all this on and like kind of realizing he has this connection with Ellie, but also dealing with uh, Sarah that he's never fully processed. I feel yeah. like the the way he dumps the uh, child's body in the first episode is almost it's um, cartoonish isn't the right word, but it's it's so discordant, it's so over the top. Um, it's so like you're still in the emotional phase of the grief process or whatever. You've not like fully got past that thing yet. And I think that whole thing that they do with him where he does reference the fact that like, oh, five years ago, I would have um, destroyed that guy when he's talking yeah. about one of the um, one of the bandits. The age of him in the game is five years younger. I think he's 52 in the game, 57 in the show. Yeah. Um, and I like that that way of like, this is what that character might be in another five years. Um, it's almost Last of Us 2, Joel, as well, where he is yeah. more sort of softer edged. Absolutely. Like that's another thing interesting thing for me what exactly what you just said there this mm. idea that um joel is an older more broken down guy mm. because you could have done that in the last of us part one but fundamentally that would have made the game less fun to play or mm. made more incongruence between the gameplay and the cutscenes. if you had an old joel who was kind of like you know struggling in the cutscenes and you're shooting <laughs> headshotting 50 guys in the gameplay you know what i mean it just wouldn't have translated no. that well but for the show because you don't have that those uh, limitations or those restrictions or those desires you can have a joel who can't hear in one ear and is limping around and mm. you know would have murdered a million guys five years ago but now is actually more scared that he's not that physically fit and might fail ellie because he's not the ravenous young buck that he once was <laughs> and again that's another side of joel that you start to see a little bit more in the last of us part two but even mm -hmm. then it feels way fleshed out here and i do think it's interesting and important that we see a more vulnerable side to Joel in this series mm. just by virtue of having less time with him and Ellie and mm. knowing how little time we may have with him in The Last of Us uh, Part 2. <laughs> we'll get to that conversation in our Last of Us uh, Season 2 prediction yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, and also for Bella Ramsey, I feel like both these characters, when you, like I said, when you apply like a holistic view to them, because for the, most of the first half of the season, maybe the first three quarters of the season, I thought that uh, Ramsey was playing Ellie a lot harsher than she is in the game. Like she came across just way more hostile to everything and just, just being a bit of a dick to like most people who were around her. And I saw, I was watching Alana Pierce talk about like, is it just me or is she way more mean than she is in the game? But I love that holistically, once you sort of, you take it, take it in isolation, it's like, well, this version of this character has been through these series of events. Once we start fleshing out her own history and the fact that we see, like, um, where she was born and the, the system she was put into and, like, um, federal schools and being passed around, which the passed around thing was mentioned in the game. Yeah. You literally see Marlene, like, take her. And that whole thing with, I don't know who's with Marlene at that point, but when they have to execute uh, Anna... Um, and you know, Marlene's like, I'll oh, cover the baby's ears, and uh, and they don't. Yeah. And it's just like, 
I like I think people pointed that out was like, oh maybe like a con- like a continuity error. But I think of it more as like one of the first sounds Ellie ever heard was a gunshot. And it's yeah. just I think that stuff is frames her psyche in a way that makes complete sense. And so I actually and I also think just massive shout out to the way that Bella Ramsey acted the more emotionally charged parts of that show. With the the when she has to kill David, when she realizes that she's been bitten. Oh man. She channels something that is so primal, like that is so honest and human and raw. It I teared up every time. Not in a sad way, just in a my God, that's human reaction. Um, phenomenal. Like, I, incredible acting. I don't know how you can see the, the reaction and the yelp when Henry kills himself that she does, or the reaction to David, or that expert's entire sequence, actually, uh, when she's trying to figure out whether she should kiss Riley and mm, the emotions that, that she goes through visibly yeah. on her face without saying anything and have that contrasted with the rage she feels when she realizes they're both bitten. Like... Every subtle emotion is conveyed unbelievably to the <laughs> point where it feels real. And like you said, you start to tear up just at the slightest facial twitches. And the fact that Bella Ramsey is so relatively young in acting mm. terms, you know, 17, when she shot this 19 now, I think, you know, is is crazy. Like that, the, the ability to do that at such a young age mm. is Unreal. I think as well when you pair off against the amount of time they spend, like little, you know, obviously there's the Bill and Frank episode. You get the flashback one of her with Riley. You get characters like Kathleen brought in Henry and Sam. Um, you know, one of the other conversations is like, oh, would you have wanted to spend you know, every single episode with just Joel and Ellie? But the fact that they dominated the conversation so much, and like I said, like you know, in real life, Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal have become, like I said, these global treasures. Like over the course of the nine weeks for the show, um, speaks to how much they have owned those roles in the limited, not even limited, but the lesser screen time that. They got. Um, it is just worth shouting out those two as as the cast because I think um, I remember going into this like I mean I was thinking that they would cast someone more like a Caitlin Diva for Ellie or Deva because um, I thought she just it's that whole classic online thing where you just look at someone who looks like the role in the original uh, source material and go from there and it was like oh Bella Ramsey that's interesting she was the Mormont. we know that she has that fire in her but like we've not seen her you know in a, in a whole show um, but it, it just completely it was perfect like yeah. you couldn't really do better and I think her version of Ellie again holistically is so identifiable and is meaningfully different from Ashley Johnson's. Yes. Um, which I think is, is so worthwhile. Pedro's Joel is different to Troy's Joel, which is great because it, it only differentiates those conversations going forward. They're not trying to replace the game. It's just a different version of it. Exactly, which is what I, can, I want out this show and what made the moments where they did just do, I mean, um, do the game one for one with the cutscenes mm still interesting like mm. early on and I, I think you had the similar issue where when they were just adapting the game cutscenes directly it was kind of the worst part of the show and I <laughs> used the word worst relatively there because it was yeah, still good yeah, yeah. it just wasn't as exciting or engaging as a as a fan at mm. least in my perspective no, I'd back that. as the other stuff that they were doing but when it when, when it went on and we got to stuff taken directly from the game like with Ellie and David mm. I thought because the characters, like you said, felt meaningfully different through those performances that I was back invested in those gaming scenes, especially towards the end of the final episode where you have the giraffes. I've seen that giraffe scene in game form (laughs) so many different times and it felt meaningfully different here just by the way that Pedro Pascal looks at Bella Ramsey while it's happening. In this case, he's not looking at the giraffe. He's looking at this character's reaction to Mm. it and he's in the emotions on his face in that scene made a scene that I've seen so many times fresh again 
Which yeah, is no, cool. totally. I think, yeah, little things like that that are, I mean, we know from the behind the scenes stuff that that giraffe was a real giraffe and that they just got to have a few minutes with it and like real Bella Ramsey got to like feed it and stuff. And her laugh in that scene, assumedly, is like her actual reaction to feeding a giraffe, which they just sort of left in there. But it's like, yeah, little things that little affectations that they got to use to make the uh, characters distinct, where I'm always going to love Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson as those characters. I'm always going to, I still prefer uh, 2013 original Joel. I prefer a hard edge Joel that softens later. Yeah. Um, I think that's. It's a better arc for him, and I think that sort of better replicates a lot of the male figures that I grew up with, I guess, or a, a more traditional depiction of masculinity, and I'm all for breaking that down over time, so I prefer that a little bit to him being softer earlier, even though I think both are completely valid. But um, I still think overall that they're just fascinating ways to approach that source material. And the more Pedro's talked about it, um, the more the entire fandom has been like, he totally gets it. Like, he gets what the character goes through and how to get there. Yeah, man. Even that thing that he apparently added in his big emotional monologue about failing in his dreams, it just, mm. the stuff that he adds to it, not just from the performance, but from the writing perspective in that case, just to me indicates that he he gets it. You mm. might not you might not know the game in and out. You might not know the game performance in and out, but he gets the, the core of the story. Mm. And I think if you get the core of the story and the core of the character as well, you're going to do a good version of it. You're not going to do a one-to-one imitation, mm. but you're going to get the spirit of what they meant, mm-hmm. even if you do change things along the way. Let's talk about some other stuff that they added, because at the beginning in the first, I think it's only in the first two episodes, they had some specific flashbacks to, um, I can't even think who the character, what the character's called, but um, specific scenes showing, um, there's one scene that's in like the 70s, where it's like a talk show. Yeah. Um, what's that dude's name? John someone? He's called John Hanna in real John life. John Hanna. I was going to go John Hamm, and it wasn't John Hamm. Uh, John <laughs> Hamm. was. They should I, get John Hamm for season two. Bring him in. I don't know who you could play in, everybody in season two. Hell yeah. Um, bring him in. But John Hanna um, is playing um, I don't know, like a sort of biological bio, bio specialist. We'll yes, say. someone who knows their knows their fungi. Brain doctor. He's a brainman, and uh, and he's talking about um, the idea of what might happen if the planet's uh, temperature goes up and global warming and that kind of thing, and how that would allow for a fungal outbreak to happen. Um, and we sort of get it's just a little tease that you don't obviously have in the game. And then in episode two, you have another a different character introduced almost um, Vince Gilligan style, where it's like it's like Breaking Bad, it's like Better Call Saul, it's like a scene that's completely detached contextually from where you were when you left off and then you slowly bring it back around again. Um, it reminded me of that scene in, is it in Breaking Bad where that guy's eating all the different flavoured uh, chips or whatever and then he ends up killing himself. <laughs> He's like having all those dips. I like, actually can't remember that. Oh my God, it's in like season two or three or something. Uh, the Madrigal guy, be later on. Anyway. Yes, oh, I do dude. know who you mean. Like, yeah, yeah, Just his whole day and what his day is like and yep. then, you, then you reveal who he is and why he's important and everything. And uh, it reminded me a little bit of that and I thought that I was like, oh, that's a really cool thing to do um, fleshing out the different parts of the discovery of the um, the cordyceps and what happened and like how it spread. It's a little, it reminded me a little bit of like the opening chapters of like World War Z or something and hmm. um, fleshing out how it could get from place to place. And I thought that was really, really cool. Um, they don't do much with that after Afterwards, but I think the um, the acting, if we're talking about acting performances, the bit in the beginning of the second episode where the woman, you know, the the, uh, the specialist is being asked, what do we do? And she just says, bomb, just just, yeah. just get rid of everything. Like, you can't stop this. Um, I thought her acting in that bit, that one take where it slowly zooms in and she, you realize that she can, can't even hold her little, like, cup anymore. Uh, I thought that was phenomenally done. I kind of wish they did more of that. That was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. I like the talk show stuff, but I didn't mm. love it. But Same. I loved that. Do you want the news? For the talk show for me? I, I think so too, a little bit, especially mm. as someone who's played the games who didn't need that information. No. I get why it's there. It definitely serves a function. But the second version of it with the the female specialist who actually sees the cordyceps up close and personal, phenomenal. And yes. it was the most Chernobyl-like scene in the entire show. Very true. Selling that sense of inevitable doom that I think Chernobyl got down mm. to a T 
just like you mentioned there when she just says, you know, this is so dangerous. You need to bomb the city right now. <laughs> if this gets out, we destroy the entire world. Yeah. The visual of her reaching down and having the cordyceps kind of like reach out of the mouth, obviously echoing what happens to Tess at the end as well. I just thought that it serves such a great purpose, not just from an exposition standpoint, but from mm. a thematic standpoint, for a foreshadowing standpoint. I wish they did more of it, and I didn't expect myself to be saying that before the show started. No, what do you think of that? And um, we'll wrap this soon because we'll transition into talking about season two stuff. But um, what do you think of the changing the thing to the tendrils coming out the mouth and the way that Tess died? And uh, that was one of the initial, oh, they changed something and we're not cool with it necessarily, parts of the fandom or the reaction. Um, the bit where she decides that she's just going to sacrifice herself to let Joel and Ellie leave and the uh, infected guy just sort of kisses her and then becomes an infected and Mason said on the podcast that it's if you mentally are ready to be um, you know part of the horde then they kind of recognize that that was a weird beat to me it's one of those things that I, I like as a storytelling device but it the way it was filmed I thought the optics were quite uncomfortable yeah. in a kind of bad way for me personally mm. like the idea of like the infected recognizing another infected and then not getting violent, but then, you know, wanting to just spread this thing from mm. one person to another was kind of interesting and it made them feel even gross and more uncomfortable and weird and alien than they already were. It further distinguished them from zombies for me. Mm. But to do it to that character and have it be such a what for me for me felt like a kind of like a sexually infused yeah. um shot composition in the it was like a it was side on shot it's like the standard romantic Ab- shot absolutely <laughs> but obviously it's got all these menacing undertones it's 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 a man um infected you know like assaulting a helpless mm. woman in that scene mm-hmm. it just to me i was like the optics of this make me feel uncomfortable in, in, in the wrong way, Craig. I don't know about this one. I don't know about this one. <laughs> this is not amazing, Craig. It's not. Yeah, that was one of the first one. One of the first things that um, I just thought we should we should touch on because I feel like the idea of changing it around so it's not about the spores and it's not about aerial dispersion as much. Although they have said it might become that later on. Um, it's more about direct transmission through like the tendrils or whatever. But again, at the very beginning, it was all like, okay, how are you guys going to play this? Like you're introducing these tendrils, you're introducing these different ways of um, you know, infection itself, and how is that going to feel, and how is that going to um, play out across the season? And for me, that was one of their for me that was one of their biggest missed opportunities. I thought they would do more with that. I, I I do think they should have done more. I really hope they double down on that stuff in season two. Mm. That said, as a concept, I love the way that they handle infection mm. in this version of the uh, story. Right. I think infected characters, there's a sense of real tragedy and doom around them mm. in a way that wasn't. There wasn't in the original game just because someone gets bit in the original game and they have the bite and you know what's going to happen, but they're not affected immediately. Whereas here, when Tess gets bit, for instance, and you see her walking up the stairs and she's starting to twitch, like that Mm. idea of like, it's already taking hold. It's already cursing, coursing through your system Mm -hmm. and you're already starting to change and you can physically see it. Mm Something about that was scarier to me and I liked that addition. It just made the infection feel have a bit more threat to it in the moment rather than just knowing what's going to happen off camera later on down the line. Mm. I, I did like that change a lot. I do, yeah. I think that was something where um, it, like, it reducing that, I mean, mentioning it on the podcast, that idea that they can sense what you're thinking kind of thing to some degree that if you want to be assimilated, you just can be, um, is that whole rule book of, you know, show, don't tell, don't reveal what the creature can do. I mean, I always cite The Thing, 1982 is The Thing, 
Um, it's like my favorite horror thing, one of my favorite movies of all time, because you can't quantify it or qualify it. You just, it's just this, it is just this thing that is assimilating and it, you don't know exactly what it wants. And I think that that's really effective. And I wonder how much he was pulling from that in terms of um, the idea of, obviously this is a big deal in gaming, but The Last of Us having an iconic enemy going forward or an iconic force that people maybe refer to in 10 or 15 years time of like the infected. Oh my God, they were like that. They would meet, read minds a little bit. They would yeah. do this. Um, and they could put tendrils down and all that kind of stuff. I know so, yeah. Neil Druckmann has already said this, but if they do make a Last of Us part three, I mm. would really love to see them incorporate some of the mm. elements of the infected into the game, just because I do think it makes them a little bit more alien, like I said, and does differentiate them from zombies. I mean, you already you already have that in the game and the show with clickers and bloaters and yep. the various mutations, but just the core infected, it makes them a little bit different, mm. a little bit more unnatural, a little bit gross and weird for lack of a better term and I would like to see that well, in the I, game like, as well. Yeah, I like that as like, a, I mean, literally like a fungal network. Like there are things in real science you can pull from in that regard, but I like it as a almost a visualization on the surface of the earth that they are, you know, taking back the planet kind of thing. Yeah. And um, that nature is overgrowing stuff, which ties in with Last of Us's overall art direction. Um, yes. I know we're going to finish up and I know we've mm. got so many more things to record today, Scott Tilford, but I don't <laughs> think we can do a season one podcast without talking about the final episode even briefly okay. and how they handle Joel's massacre through the hospital oh God, and yeah. the shooting of the doctor in the final With scene. the Game of Thrones opera opera music. Absolutely. music. Because honestly, that was the one I was most scared for <laughs> because they had scaled back the violence so, so much. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them to dilute the impact of the ending by scaling back Joel's massacre. Just have him kill the doctor or one or two people and have it be that. Right. For me, it was a sigh of relief that they allowed him to go full hog, for lack of a a better term, (laughs) and really show him almost dissociating and just murdering everyone in that facility. Yeah, he was like, you ever seen the Mancurian Candidate? Yes. He was like that. He was like, he was like, it was like, it was like he was activated. It was like he sat bolt upright and was just like, okay, I'm going to go get Ali back. And yeah, the sort of the super methodical nature of that was. I hate, I hate the default word of interesting, but I thought, like, effective. Yeah. I thought effective as portraying him as a monster in terms of um, the way that he's viewed in Last of Us 2, whereas, like, which is a whole wider conversation on how philosophically open should the end of Last of Us 1 be, where someone is doing clearly bad actions dooming the rest of humanity, um, but invoking that idea of, like, but you'd probably do the same thing. And yeah. that, that crossover being the most fascinating part of how Last of Us 1 always ended. By showing him sort of more robotic and completely devoid of humanity and not just doing it out of emotion um, and doing it more methodically and more, like I said, more, more robotically. Um, there was that specific bit where that guy surrenders and he still goes in there and knifes him. Like, but you don't see his face at that point. He goes off him and then back in with the blade. Um, it did, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I thought it was effective, but I was just twinned with how cold and um, sort of uh, fully convinced of himself that, that he's like, Ellie is the new Sarah, and when they're walking through the forest after that, I was like, you're a full-on kidnapper at this point. <laughs> like, you're just a full-on, absolute insane human, and you've like budgeted people robotically, and I don't even know if I can trust you whatsoever at this point, um, which was different to how Last of Us 1 ended, where you could you kind of got what he was doing in that moment a bit more. That's yeah. where we disagree, I mm. think, because when The Last of Us 1 ended, the game ended, of course, uh, I had that same realization almost of, oh, do I trust you? Right. Do I like you now? Mm-hmm. Even away from the question of, you know, should he have done it? Was that something you would do in that mm-hmm. situation? I think the way it was framed in The Last of Us Part 1 where, to me, it always comes down to him lying to Ellie. Yes. I think that's what makes it clear that he is not to be trusted in that moment and he has done something wrong mm-hmm. because if he 
thought he didn't do something wrong, if he thought what he did was right, mm. in my head, he would try to argue that case to Ellie. He mm. wouldn't lie to her mm. and kind of feel guilt about it. And that's what makes the question so interesting. I love it because of that. I love the questions that it raises mm-hmm. and stuff. But I had the same feeling walking with Joel as Ellie in mm-hmm. the final sequence of the game where he's talking about Sarah and just feeling, having that sinking feeling in my stomach as a player, mm-hmm. thinking the guy I've been looking up to, the guy who's got me through this entire game, he's done something here that I kind of resent him right. for. And obviously that carries into part two. Mm-hmm. But I thought they did that great in the show because... Joel's much more likable in the show as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, at least in my eyes, he's got that vulnerability to him. You see so many instances of him trying to be a father to Ellie, trying mm-hmm. to, you know, encourage her joke book, trying to show how to shoot much earlier than you get in the game. So it makes that twist again just as uncomfortable, if not more. Maybe they go too far with it, maybe they don't. But it, it worked in the exact same way for me, which I was right. so pleased that they did because that's what makes Joel such an interesting character and such a cool character is that he has so many qualities that you love, so many qualities that you relate to, and then he does stuff and you think, can I forgive you for this, Joel? Which is the question that Ellie obviously has in part two. Yeah, which that's the, that's a whole other thing. There's a whole wider conversation that we'll probably get back to at certain points going forward. But I feel like where The Last of Us is at the end of part two in the game as an IP, as a conversation, as something that Neil Druckmann carried on after Bruce Draley left um, with Halle Gross and the rest of Naughty Dog, it feels like taking that point where we are at the end of Last of Us 2 and then kind of transposing it back across into Last of Us Part 1. Is how can we see that more directly? How can we really hammer home that Joel did the wrong thing? How can we make you feel more um, aware, like you said, of, of despising him kind of thing and not um, or, or, you know, just being more aware of where the story's going to go? Um, because we now know where that story's going to go, which they didn't have back in 2013. Or maybe they had bits and pieces. Um, but as far as I know, they didn't plan it as a part as a part two or a trilogy or whatever. Maybe semantics this right. Mm. Maybe, maybe I'm being too picky. But for me, part two never really says Joel did the wrong thing. No. But it definitely says Joel did a bad thing. And yes. I think there's a slight difference to that because I think The Last of Us Part 1 also says Joel's done a bad thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and it's like you can – I think you just need to be able to know uh, that what he's done is like – bad in a way of this is going to inspire consequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what like makes the ending so interesting and makes what happens in part two kind of feel so, makes you feel so conflicted about because it's like, you can see why Joel did it, mm-hmm. did what he did in part one, but you can see why other characters do what they do in part two in response to that, if that that's makes true. sense. Oh, totally. I think uh, I always, always loved the cut to black in the 2013 game, like the whole, does she know, does she not know? Does she want to believe the lie? Does she not want to believe the lie? I thought it was a bit more clear cut in the show, um, but I guess we'll see how, how things pan out in uh, in part two, which speaking of, we've got our own part two to oh. do, um, because this has been the What Culture Gaming Podcast. I've been your host, Scott Tilford, joined by Josh Brown. Always a pleasure, Scott Tilford. Always a pleasure to be heard by all of you, and we'll catch you for part two oh. next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs>
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.